Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Graham Brown and this is for SMF, the Singapore Management Festival, brought to you by SIM. I'm delighted today to be speaking to Chao Chen Wong, who happens to be the Technical Director at Advanced Remanufacturing and Technology Centre. He's going to help us unpack and understand a little bit better about the fourth industrial revolution and to do that maybe by taking us back somewhat in his own history as well as the history of the internet and the industrial revolutions of the past. Chao Chao, welcome to the show. Hi Graham, how are you? Very good, thank you. You know what I'm really looking forward to? I think it's kind of nice, we're going to talk about the fourth industrial revolution, but you studied yourself in perhaps the home of the first industrial revolution. I know you're Singaporean, yeah, but you studied in Birmingham, which... Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what's Birmingham's heritage and where does it fit into the picture of the the old Industrial Revolution, how it's relevant to today? Right. I have to admit, I do not know much about Birmingham. I was a young 22-year-old boy leaving my home country and then <laughs> pursue a mechanical degree in Birmingham. It was, that time, the heart of the industry in UK, right? So I pursued my engineering degree, mechanical engineering degree, and then... The good thing about it, in Birmingham, you get to expose yourself to quite a few industries, like what you just mentioned, the automotive industry. And then that aroused my interest in the area of manufacturing. And I was being offered a scholarship to do a research degree, a PhD in, in manufacturing, in particular related to the technique of forging, which is widely used for the automotive industry. And, and during that time, there was a researchers or scientists venturing into using computer modeling to see how metal flows in the forging process. So I think that was really the start of uh, seeing how we could use data to create a digital twin so that we can understand the process better to prevent us from doing a lot of unnecessary trial and errors experiments. Well, what a great start because now we're in the era when people talk about the fourth industrial revolution. So this is really where many of those early ideas are coming to life and changing beyond the research labs, the actual industrial landscape now. So maybe you can help us understand what the fourth industrial revolution is. And maybe we can start with a definition in your understanding, Chao Chir, of what it means to you. Right. The fourth industrial revolution is, of course, when we talk about the first industrial revolution, it's all about power generation, then followed on by the second, which is industrialization. The third industrial revolution is about electronic automation. Then right now, the fourth industrial revolution or industry 4.0 it's a term coined by the Germans. It's really looking at how we could proliferate connectivity. I mean, day-to-day -day life, we started using mobile phones 10, 15 years ago. And nowadays, we are connecting our mobile phones to our wearables on our wrist to track our heartbeat when we're doing exercise and to give us insight into how our body is responding right, to the exercise. So it's, it's really proliferating that connectivity into that industry space. Right? Give you a simple example is how do we put in more sensors so that we can get more insightful data and then do analysis. And once we do the analysis, the process can self-correct or self-optimize by itself. Can you give us an example of that 4IR or fourth industrial revolution? Show us a day-to-day -day example of where that's actually happening. Ah, right. The easiest example is connecting your wearables or your, your Apple Watch to your smartphone, right? I think in the industry space or in the manufacturing space, I, I am in research and development, right? And sometimes we do a lot of uh, designing uh, of parts, designing of processes. And a day-to-day -day example would be, instead of just using a cat to draw the design, you could move on to a step further to do 
some simulation where you define the boundary condition. When I, when I say boundary condition is where you find the parameters that this object that you have designed is, is working under. Then with a click of a button, you'll probably wait for 20 to 25 minutes, right? Depending on how complicated is your model, you would then get wonderful, colorful results of different stresses. And then you will be able to make uh, information and of course immediately change your design and then run this simulation again. So everything is, is done in a seamless way before you place an order to your supplier to say that, okay, I want to have this part made. I guess the key to that is that you are able to do a lot of tasks which required manual labor before, right? That's right, exactly. And, and that, that, that's the bit where it gets interesting because the fourth industrial revolution is like the last industrial revolutions is both a creator and a destroyer of jobs, right? And that's what people want to know. And I just sort of cite some data here if I can tell shows like the World Economic Forum future of jobs report said that the fourth industrial revolution would destroy uh, 75 million jobs, yet at the same time would create 133 million jobs, right? By 2022, which is just around the clock, that's three years or two, two and a half years, 75 million jobs gone. Firstly, let's unpack that. Jobs will go, jobs will be created. Where will the jobs that go, go from first in the fourth industrial revolution? You having stated the data just now, I think the key is really upskilling of the workers. Of course, you, you have the millennials or the Gen Z coming in with the right engineering background and then with proper training on analytics, the, the millennials and the Gen Z wouldn't have a problem dealing with the technology, right? Because, I mean, it's right down their alley when you ask them to do data analysis. Um, it, it's really about people of my generation or older, upskilling them and, and I think open to change for them to really take up this technology. And how, how we should really look at it is Industry 4.0 technology augment or even help us in our current work that we are doing. Right? Example, you are a technician. We talk a lot about human-robot collaboration, in short, collaborative robots. Right? And cobots, they are not as dexterous as, as a human being. Right? I'll give you an example if you want to screw something. Right? Sometimes if you have a human doing it, they can just give some allowance or give and take you know, according to the dexterity of the hand. But robot can't do that. You, you have to program exactly specific instructions to be able to do that. So I think working with robots is something that, that will be the future. And I think we need to upskill the workers uh, in that aspect and also in the area of being able to be more analytical, looking at the result, and then to be able to make insightful decisions to optimize the process. You mentioned something interesting there. Cobots, can you help us understand what that is? That may be news to some people. It might sound a bit scary to some as well, but help us understand that. Yeah, I would say in the third industrial revolution, you already see industry robots, right? They are, they are huge in, in automotive plants where they do tech welding and, and they do various assemblies. So these are industry robots. And when it comes to working in industry robots, safety is the main concern. So once the robots start operating, you need to have gate and fences, right? And everything is always pre-programmed. And they're limited in their functions because if you require to assemble something that requires higher accuracy, the robot would have suffered because the six axis, I mean, in all honesty, cannot compare to a human arm or leg motion. So then, then it came to a point where how do we exploit our robots better so that in the industry 4.0 revolution, it can mend what uh, or even help what human beings are doing. So then they came about, of course, uh, robotic companies. They put in safety features. They, they kind of limit the functions of the robots. But by doing that, the robots are able to work hand in hand with the human beings. Right? So you have a, a one simple robot arm beside 
do some of the simple sorting out and then put it into a box for, for a human being to do the rest of the process that require higher accuracy. So in short, it's really being able to work hand in hand with the human and the human would feel safe working with a robot, right? two robots beside you. I mean, the last thing you want is to have the robot arm just, just giving you a smack. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they have a lot of force behind them, those things, even though they might not be as accurate as you say on the six axis. I'm curious about the cobot idea. Is that sort of a short term transition phase? Because you talk about, for example, like having a support robot that could be sorting out objects. And that can apply to, you know, a spreadsheet problem or sorting out uh, screws in a tray, for example, like a visual recognition problem. Or it could be analyzing scans of a lung or an organ for a doctor, right? In that case, what they're doing is is many, many spreadsheet-style problems, but very, very fast. But they're not maybe able to do what you you talk about, those very high-end tasks, which require a lot of, whether it's intuition or experience or sort of very general intelligence, where maybe a doctor can make a decision where it doesn't have all the data sets available to them, or maybe the human being can make a decision about the screws because you know, oh, that was not a screw that you put in there. That was something else that shouldn't have been in that tray, right? So those sort of anomalies, human beings are probably quite good at dealing with. Is that a short-term solution, you know, where we're going towards a fifth industrial revolution, maybe where robots, cobots can replace human beings? I mean, in all those tasks, I wonder, can they do those sort of general intelligence tasks? I think, Graham, you have described it quite nicely and you talk about getting robots to do simple spreadsheet stuff and then the more complicated stuff that requires human intelligence will be of course done by the human and that brings to an interesting point about artificial intelligence which is the next topic which a lot of people has been talking about in the future a lot of people have said that how could we enable robots or even cobots to have intelligence that could make some decision for the human beings if you ask me in all honesty i think it will be another seven to eight years before we we can realize that because I've heard people talking about robots or robots making decisions or machines making decisions on behalf of human beings. I think that a certain level could be done. But sometimes it's, you know, if I'm asking you for feedback, you know, uh, how am I doing for this interview? You can give me instant feedback, right? But in terms of robot, getting that feedback might be a bit challenging. My, my, my point. So you correctly say that it might happen at the fifth industrial revolution. Uh, that sounds a bit scary if we have artificial intelligence taking over. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's park that for now and focus on the fourth. I'm fascinated by what you're going to talk about at SMF as well and what sort of subjects you're going to touch on. And do you, do you think when you talk about fourth industrial revolution to audiences who may not be coming from your position, I mean, you're a mechanical engineer by training, this is not new. But if I'm from a bank or an insurance company or a law firm at SMF, and I'm, I'm hearing you talk about this. This may be the first time I've actually heard that this actually may impact me. Like you said, of a certain generation, this may be the first time I'm thinking, well, I've got to upskill. So maybe we can talk about some of the myths that people have. Or do you find that the common thoughts that people have about the fourth industrial revolution that you like to challenge a little bit from the cold, hard reality that you see working in it on a day-to-day basis? I think one of, one of the biggest concerns is, of course, the cost of scaling up Industry 4.0, right? I wouldn't call it a myth, um, but I think what, what most people can do, it's, uh, I always use these this three words, think big, start small, and scale fast. 
the key is really starting small. You identify a use case. Of course, it requires the C-suite or, or the directors in the company to make a decision to identify a use case that allow the company to start small. And then once you gain the momentum, things can proliferate from then on within the company. So starting small, it's really key because when we have companies visiting us in ARTC, because uh, we do have a model factory to show people what Industry 4.0 looks like, um, sometimes get kind of put off because they, they look at a fancy technology like augmented reality, the virtual reality that can be used to train people. They wouldn't think that could apply to the company. So my advice to them is always to, to start small. Like perhaps just put a few sensors, you know, get some reliable data. In a way, help them reduce costs by even as low as you know, 3 to 5%. I'm fascinated by what's going on at ARTC, your model factory. And I, I'm going to ask you, what what can we see there? And as I do this, I'm thinking about almost like history. A hundred years ago, if you went to California, you could have seen Henry Ford's model factory. You know, this is the industrial automotive process being, and I think they had you know, a scaled version of actually where they made cars during the World Fair. And you would have marveled at people building on a factory line, a production line, which was new, you know, back then. But people would have walked away and think, wow, something's happening. If I visit ARTC and see your model factory, you mentioned augmented reality. What else can I see going on? Maybe give you a flavor of what the future looks like. So when we come to ARTC, uh, we have this model factory. What we will show you, of course, is as a start we call the virtual manufacturing lab. And within the virtual manufacturing lab, we create a digital twin. So one of the examples that we use is a digital twin of training how an operator assemble uh, a gearbox, right? So the operator can, can do not have to be physically present at the machine. They can just wear something like a goggle and, and then it will bring them into the virtual reality space. And then with some handheld devices, they will, able, they will be able to go through the process of assembling the, the gearbox. Now, when it comes to augmented reality, it, it kind of does the same thing as well. It's just that augmented reality is a bit like mixed reality. You superimpose computer graphics on real-life objects. And when you're doing certain things like repair, it can help you point to the right location where you have to fix certain things and then bring you to step-by-step step to completing the, the repair or the maintenance process. So that is the, the digital bit where we create digital twin to help technicians or operators' capabilities. And, and then you will go down to, to, the, to what we call the lean line, where you actually see the assembly of the gearbox and the operator will be supported by various data and information to help make more informed decisions as the parts come up to assemble the gearbox. And finally, you will go up to the control room. It's a bit like air traffic control, right? We call it manufacturing intelligence control room. And that is an area where we aggregate all the data, we analyze, and then we will be able to optimize based on the information that we see in the control room of the lean line that is happening downstairs. And what would be for a manufacturer the business case? Is it that it's cheaper, it's faster, or you can produce things you couldn't produce before or lower risk? What are the key drivers there and people moving towards that model? I think the key driver is really to be able to reach a decision faster. I can give you another simple example, right? Through the, the virtual manufacturing lab, a very simple example would be, you know, let's say you, you have a shop floor, then you have five to six machines, and then suddenly you, you're going to bring in another new machine. And then a bunch of engineers will just gather around the table and look at the 2D joints and see, oh, where can we fit the machine, right? And sometimes it, I think visualization is 
you really can't visualize on the 3D drawing. Right? Sometimes it's difficult to make informed decisions. So very simply, we could create, we could scan your machine and then uh, patch up through CAD drawing. And then you will have a soft copy of all the machines, the current machines that you are, have already placed in your shop floor. And if a new machine comes along, you will be able to shift that machine around quite easily, either through a big screen with a bunch of engineers discussing, and then hence optimizing the space for the shop floor. So that's one very simple example. Hmm. Thinking about, I mean, you mentioned, for example, more complex processes. And let's go way back to Birmingham and, you know, the heartland you talk about. It's the black country. It's the home of heavy industry in the UK and very much the, the early stages of the automotive industry. And you think about car manufacturing. Traditionally, that, that took seven years from idea to that car being on the dealership forecourt, right? When you apply these processes, even like with visualization, does that sort of make that process a lot faster? Do, you know, like say, get to a decision quickly. Can I test, for example, like a, the manufacturer of a car much faster and not have to wait seven years before I work out whether or not a customer actually wants to drive it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the design, the look, and how you place the engine and, and how you analyze the aerodynamics might be a way to adopt digital twin. But at the end of the day, I think you still have to make a prototype because driving a car is all about the feel, right? I mean, you know, how, how you feel the wheels and, and the traction and, and things like that. So I, I think digital twin can really help in the designing stage uh, or modeling the, the airflow around the car. But I think it comes to a stage where, where manufacturers, car manufacturers will still have to really test the car. Seven years, my guess is that actually manufacturers can do it faster, but I think they, of course, have to time the market correctly, right? I mean, that, that's a business decision, how, how they want to roll out new launches for the new cars. Yeah, but I think you can take away a lot of the, uh, the conceptualizing phases and the prototyping as well, that, that can at least speed that up. So let's talk about it in the context of here in ASEAN, because this is a key manufacturing base here, traditionally here in Singapore. And obviously that's all changed now, but I mean, we still have some manufacturing base here in Singapore. Um, you know, but if you go way back, not too long ago, making MP3 players and hard drives, you know, it was made here. There was a manufacturing base, but that's changing. So you, you may sort of say, well, we're not a manufacturing economy here in Singapore anymore. So does this apply when we talk about industrial revolution? Wh where is it going to impact? Is it going to impact factories in other countries or is that mindset going to impact banks, insurance companies? everybody here in Singapore? I think I'll answer your question in two parts. Um, in, in the Singapore context, manufacturing still plays a very important role in Singapore. It contributes to about 21% of GDP. And I think repeatedly the ministers have said that manufacturing is, a, is an important pillar because of it, its contribution to value add per worker. And interestingly, I mean, through our experience in ARTC is that uh, we typically look at manufacturing from let's say for my automotive industry or aerospace engine industry, right? Making, making parts. But in fact, manufacturing is about converting raw materials, parts and components into a finished product, right? And to that end, we, it's not really to uh, the typical automotive and aerospace industry. We also work with uh, the fast moving consumer goods company, companies that sell your coffee sachets, your shampoo, right? 
so in, in the Singapore context, uh, manufacturing still has its value. I would say uh, applications are still a lot of application when it comes to um, the manufacturing industry, and it's still a very important part of Singapore. Yeah, to put it very simply, the second part about ASEAN is that very simply, China has now the cost of labor in China has has, has gone up, and you know all know that China has been the factory of the world for the past decade or so, and I think because of Chinese China's labor cost. Um, going up, uh, a lot of attention has been put on ASEAN companies, especially Thailand, Indonesia, and especially Vietnam. Right? Industry 4.0 not only allow Singapore to transcend its limitation because we are small, um, but that the same can be applied to other ASEAN countries as well because they are increasingly looking at at how they can use uh, Industry 4.0 to improve their value add because it's not all about labor anymore, right? Because a lot of people will say that I go to Vietnam because the labor is cheap. Etc. Et but I think um, that is really not the value add that people are looking for now. Right. So, so your offers opportunities not only for Singapore because manufacturing will still be very important part of Singapore. Uh, but I mean, on the other part, of course, ASEAN we are also using trying to leverage industry 4.0 to to transcend the limitations, so to speak. Does that make more of a level playing field? Like now, obviously, that sort of gives the ASEAN countries. Singapore accepted advantages they didn't have before. So in that sense, Singapore has to kind of constantly rethink itself up the S-curve, if you like, that it can't be what it was today, like tomorrow, because there are now like these markets who have access to technology, which give them advantages only Singapore had before, right? Which may be like high skilled labor, right? The fact that they now have robots, means that they can actually do those jobs or some of those jobs, like we say, or some part of them, that was really the prerogative of Singaporeans before, right? I think, yes, it will level the playing field. But at the end of the day, if we want to scale up uh, when it comes to Industry 4.0, it really needs multiple parties to, to work together. That means the public agencies, the industries, you know, everyone needs to work together. And, and, and how each country... All these people, all these agencies can work together, how fast they can work together, how collaborative they can work together, really defines whether you have an edge over one another. That's solely my personal view, right? Because you, you can't really go it alone by yourself, um, which that's why I will be covering in my talk about the innovation ecosystem. We talk a lot about open innovation, how could you collaborate between private and private companies, private and public partnership. So I think that that is really the area of the space that you could define yourself, although we say that Industry 4.0 has, has really leveled the playing field. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, Tata, about the younger workers entering the market. For them, it may be more sort of obvious and intuitive, the kind of mindset needed to thrive in those collaborative ecosystems. Yet, you know, if you have 20 years of career behind you, your success may be working against you a little bit, right? In the sense that this has got you here, but that mindset won't get you to the next stage. And for younger people, it may, you know, sharing is just kind of part of their way of life now, even like social media, et cetera. Yeah, if you're, if you're a senior manager, now you're talking about collaborative innovation ecosystems. It requires a bit of a change and stepping outside their comfort zone, right? And I'll bring in here some data from the McKinsey report. So McKinsey published a report about the fourth industrial revolution and curious about your thoughts on this. And they said that, you know, here are the top three reasons preventing a pilot moving to a rollout in four IR projects, right? 
So the top three were in this order. Number one, lack of knowledge. Number two, high cost of scaling. And number three, hard to justify the business case. So we'll talk about cost, obviously, in a bit. I mean, you've mentioned that already and how often that's a bit of a myth in itself, right? But the lack of knowledge, I think people don't know where to start or they don't know how to think about the problem, which is really folded into the third part about justifying the business case is like, you know, how do we deal with this? Like, where does it fit in? How do I deal with this? What kind of mindset do I need? I need to build a collaborative ecosystem, an innovation ecosystem. Where does that start in my organization? Is that for the engineers or the tech guys to do? Is that what the CMO does or the CTO? How does that all work? And I guess then that becomes overwhelming, doesn't it? Then they have too much information and they procrastinate. So are there sort of easy wins here? Are there quick wins that, okay, start here, start at this part, you know, maybe a small project. Um, how can I move this forward and how do I need to think about it and what can help me as a senior manager or a leader in my organization? Yeah, I think the, because senior managers and directors, they are often busy and not everyone will, look, will read through reports after reports, right? You have McKinsey reports or even Boston Consulting Group. That, that is why the, the best way is, we always say, right, seeing is believing. Right? One is, of course, visit the, the two model factory in, in A-Star. Uh, the second one is, of course, to really see what other companies have done, which we also encourage within, within ARTC for partners to learn from one another. Because that's the only way that you really get a touch and feel and also the, the conviction that it does bring you benefit. I'm not sure whether I, you know, if I describe it correctly. Um, I think that that's based on my, my personal experience. Um, <clears throat> you can read whatever you want, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's just seeing it and seeing what people have already done it. I, I think that that's the best way to resonate to a lot of people. And then after that, from those experience, see how you can learn one or few examples and then bring it back to your own company. Yeah. That's like going to the, the World Fair, isn't it? And seeing Ford's industrial production line. I think only when you see it, you think, ah, oh, the light bulb moment happens, right? That's right. That's and right. Yeah. yeah. Now it's reality. Now it's not the stuff of science fiction and it's happening. Now I can see what this could mean. And it's probably more reachable, isn't it? that you can say, actually, I can see now how this can affect my company straight away. Yeah. And just to add on a point, uh, Graham, before I forget, it's, it's about upskilling and training of the workers. I think the workers itself, workers on the ground, they know that this Industry 4.0 revolution is coming or has come, right? They know that they need to upskill. I think it's really up to the leadership to really show the way and the direction. So because there's a myth, they always say that, oh, um, it's hard for the, the workers to change. We always think that they wouldn't want to embrace this kind of technology. But, but I, th I like to see it the other way. I, I think that they they really know that they need to upscale. They know that this is coming. So, But then we need the drive from the leadership to enable that so that they can go for the training and really upscale that, themselves so that they can prepare themselves and the company for, for this revolution. Absolutely, yeah. What you're saying is that it's not the fact that the workers are burying their heads in the sand they're aware of it they want to do it but the leadership has to give them the green light say right that's right okay look, i'm going to support right. you yeah. and this is how we're going to do it right is there sort of like obvious roadmaps for that like you know it would be easy if there was the fourth industrial revolution degree I could learn and go back to school and study that. But a lot of these people are busy. It doesn't exist. Or is it a composite of different skills? I mean, you've talked obviously about seeing is believing, which is, okay, that's now the motivation. Now, what, what are the actual details? of What kind of skills do I need to learn here? 
Yeah, what I can share is it's really um, my own experience. Um, of course, I'm a mechanical and manufacturing engineer. Of course, I know a bit about sensors here and there because I know myself that I also need to be educated about Industry 4.0. There are courses around in, in Singapore, like the Singapore Polytechnic, which I attended. Uh, they offer a very general overview of what digital technology is all about. They could go through very simple use cases. And throughout that two days, I actually got a good grasp of, of what digital technology and, and what industrial 4.0 is really all about. And it's not actually very difficult to understand. Uh, you go through these kind of basic courses. And then from that, once you get an appreciation on the programming language like Python, um, the type of sensors, um, and then the type of cloud platform that you want to use and connect this together, you can then select the right thing for the workers to embark when it comes to training courses. Because when it comes to me, I, I need to appreciate holistically what's the area that Industry 4.0 covers so that I could send uh, the engineers or, or the scientists in, in ERTC to relevant courses. So, but before that, I need to have an appreciation of, of all this. Yeah. Specifically, you would be looking at uh, things like Python programming, uh, C++ programming, um, sensorization, uh, how do you clean the data uh, to create features so that you can get trends that you'll be able to do data analysis. Yeah, you can even get that in a day, can't you? I mean, obviously without going deep in any of those subjects, but your keyword is the appreciation, isn't it? And getting a 360, if you're leadership, getting a 360 holistic view on the map of what this is, and, you know, you can take a day course, you talk about Singapore Poly, SIM, I think have similar courses where you can come and just like get a top level view of what this is about. And then you're informed, so therefore even though you might not be learning Python programming, you know that that is what your engineers need to get to the next level and to upskill, right? That appreciation, you don't need to be an expert in all of this, but have a 360 view of it. And I understand also that, you know, if you're sending somebody on a course, that what it involves, right? What kind of areas they're going to be dealing with. So that's a great start. So we talked about the first part is is seeing is believing. And the second part is getting that appreciation of what the complete map is of what 4.0 is about. Is there any, I mean, sort of summarizing mindset wise? I mean, I guess that really would talk about it last, but maybe it's the first part, isn't it? That maybe this is the hardest part. I can go and see a factory. I can go to a training course, but the mindset, is there a different attitude required that you think is successful here? Yes, I think, of course, it sounds like a cliche, but being open, of course, is, is, it's very important because what I feel is that I remember attending uh, one of the uh, conference and they have launched a massive DBS regards to digital transformation. This is something she said really resonated with me. Sometimes we talk about the millennials uh, having been able to embrace this technology better. And sometimes I think the older generation, lack of a better word, should be willing to be reverse mentored by, by the younger generation, right? Because it's all, all about learning from each other, right? And I think that really resonates with me because that really exemplifies the, the, the open mindset when, when you need to embrace the Industrial 4.0 technology, right? Wow. Reverse mentored. Have you tried that? I'm wondering what it's like. I can understand why it makes sense, but the actually doing that, does that work? I mean, have, have you actually implemented it? Have you seen that work? I'd be interested to see what DBS are doing. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to see uh, the, the launch massive uh, digital transformation effort. 
um, I, reverse mentoring, of course, I, I, I done it myself because we, in ARTC, we form a digital task force where we only put young engineers and scientists into the task force and then uh, they would recommend uh, a series of digital initiatives of what you can, you can do because digital transformation is not just about industry 4.0 technology, right? It's about going paperless. I think what paperless is, is already a big challenge for us. So, and then getting them to advise you on what are things you could do, because I think a given is that we really are not exposed as much. Especially if you're successful, right? That's, that's the problem. You end up choosing your reality in a way, right? Rather than challenging it. Wow. That, that's, that, that's a real eye opener. And I think that's something that people can take away. The, the reverse mentoring as well, especially with industrial 4.0 or any sort of, of these new hyper growth technologies. And I, I wonder that is really, key to a bigger challenge which is being like you say being open isn't it like those that are open to hearing maybe things that they don't they they don't want to hear but they have to hear or maybe ideas which they're not familiar with but they have to get their head around right and and that's really the the, the modern shape of the organization and the corporation isn't it is having that kind of two-way flow of information almost from traditionally what you would say is the the grassroots, right? The workers, I suppose. And yeah, I mean, just seeing how that's going to play out in the dynamics of modern organizations is going to be fascinating because those that accept it and it, very much we're seeing, and, and this is a, a another conversation in itself. And, you know, we've mentioned China, for example, and it's almost like a lot of these organizations coming out of China have been built with that in their DNA. You know, that they have to, because that's the only way you can compete with 5,000 copycats, right? That to survive in your own market, you have to have that already in your DNA. So those that emerge from China, it's like the the gladiator arena, right? The one that survives, you know, is pretty damn good and robust. So that is how it's going to be going forward. And, you know, if people aren't on board with the mindset, no, no, nobody's going to forgive them, right? People aren't going to wait around because the alternatives are out there already, right? Business model, I would think, we don't even want to talk about traditional business model, right? It's a really obsolete. The typical business model will be challenged. So I think that's really a given. And digital transformation really requires proper change management effort. Yeah, that's what it is at the end of the day, change management 4.0, right? Almost in, in new clothes, but it's the same. Hey, Chao it's been fascinating, a really interesting walkthrough with you, and I'm really excited for your presentation at SMF. I think we're all going to learn a lot. We've just sort of scratched the surface, and it's just a shame that you don't have several hours at SMF to go in depth because it can go really deep, this subject, and just to really get into it. And obviously going to you know, ARTC is a good starting point as well and seeing the, the, the model factory. Um, but coming to SMF is as good as if they want to get an understanding of what it's about. And thanks for walking us through that. So those three sort of takeaways is go and see, you know, the upskilling, getting appreciation and even reverse mentoring as well. Um, you know, those that have listened to this podcast in preview for SMF as well, then it'd be great to hear your thoughts and asking questions at Chowcher's presentation as well afterwards in the Q&A and catch him at the coffee break as well. And, you know, collar him with maybe some of your thoughts and ideas and questions as well. I'm sure you'll be happy to field some of those questions and curiosities that people have about your work. So, ciao, ciao, Wong, everybody. 
um, Technical Director at the Advanced Remanufacturing and Technology Center. Thanks for sharing your insights with us today. I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to SMF.